podcast from Redeemer Christian Church in Amarillo, Texas. We hope you enjoy this sermon. For more information about Redeemer, please visit our website at RedeemerChristianChurch.com. Good morning, church family. Today's scripture reading is from the gospel according to John. We are continuing our deep look at the first few paragraphs of the Gospel of John, the John Prologue, and today we're going to be examining the last five verses, verses 14 through verse 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him. And cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side He has made him known. This is God's holy word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. O Lord, we pray, rise up in power and come among us. And with your great might, comfort us. Whereas through our sins and wickedness, we are hindered in running the race that is set before us. May your bountiful grace and mercy help and deliver us. Through Jesus Christ, To whom with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory, world without end. Amen. Amen. You can have your seat today. Today is the fourth and the final Sunday of the Advent season. And as a preparatory season before Christmas, Advent is a season of worshipful expectancy. It's a season of longing. In Advent, we posture our hearts in alignment with the ancient Jewish people who yearned for the coming of God's Messiah, the coming of the kingdom of peace that would heal our sin-fractured world. However, as Christians, we celebrate this season by looking back, not just at the fact that Christ the Messiah has come. We're anticipating, we're longing for, we're placing our hope in the promise that that king King Jesus will come again. In fact, that word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means arrival. And today we are going to examine the dramatic arrival of Jesus Christ, the Word of God become flesh into human history. We'll explore really one of the deepest truths of all of Scripture, the truth that God has dwelt among us. Now that phrase, dwelt among us comes directly from verse 14 of today's scripture reading. And it's a very theologically rich and loaded term. In fact, that Greek word for dwelt literally means that God, the word, has tabernacled among us. Now, the word tabernacle is not a very familiar term in the English language. And especially when we put it into a verb, tabernacled, uh, hardly many of us know what that means. However, in terms of biblical vocabulary, tabernacle refers to the place where God meets man, where God can encounter man and man can encounter God. 
And so by associating this particular word with Jesus, John, the gospel writer, is making a profoundly bold claim about how Jesus connects to the presence of Almighty God. And as I'm going to show you very briefly, the presence of God among his people is one of the most important mega-themes that runs throughout all of Scripture. It goes from Genesis all the way to the very end of Revelation. In the beginning, you see God created the heavens and the earth. He created all creatures. He created people. And it was all very good. And thanks to our collective rebellion, the happy part of the biblical story lasts for about two pages. It's not very long. But those two pages are very important. They show us that our existence has purpose and intention. Life is more than just matter in motion that is caused by quantum chaos and confusion. Humanity was created to steward God's good creation in peace and in harmony. Humanity was created to flourish in life and love as God's image bearers. We were created to walk in communion with our creator. We were created with a spiritual need to know God and to be known by him. And at the dawn of humanity, in the Garden of Eden, God walked with us in immediate, unhindered, and glorious presence. However, The perfection of paradise was shattered by our collective self-absorption and sin. We chose to worship creation rather than the creator. We became enslaved to the tyranny of our own selfish desire and sin and the powers of darkness. Yet, we still hunger for Eden. We, We hunger for the presence of God. We might try to find that, that joy and that satisfaction and that peace in relationships or in ambition or money or even substance, but we are never quite satisfied. You see, we were created with an infinite void within our hearts that will only be satiated by an infinite God. But sin has created this barrier that stands between us and the presence of God. And, and that story that began in Eden, that could have been the end of our story, that tragic ending, the the fall of man, as it's known in theology, could have been the end. But God, being rich in mercy, did not forsake mankind. He did not forsake his good creation. Instead, even when we were dead in our sin and trespasses, God began to unfold this elaborate plan of rescue and redemption. Even at great cost to himself, he would go to unfathomable lengths to dwell among his people. And that plan of redemption and restoration begins with the family of a man named Abraham. We find his story in the pages of the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Abraham's family would grow into a nation named Israel. And Israel would become enslaved to the empire of Egypt. But with great power, God delivered the people of Israel from slavery and from their oppression, and he gave them the gift of his law, the gift of his very words, which included instructions for something called the tabernacle. In fact, if you've ever tried to read through the Bible, um, you read Genesis and some pretty interesting stuff going on there. You read the first half of Exodus. It's a really exciting story. And then it really kind of slows down. There's all of these laws and regulations. But it's important to realize 
the vast majority of those laws and regulations were about something called the tabernacle. It all goes back to God's plan to dwell among his people. And the tabernacle would become this this portable tent that God would use to be able to abide among his people. However, the problem of sin still remained. So in order for God to be present among his people, the Israelites, the ancient people of Israel, would have to prepare blood sacrifices of innocent animals to atone for the ways that sin had fractured their relationship with God. Now that practice of sacrifice certainly sounds very barbaric to our very post-enlightenment ears. The sacrifices were not something about giving God something that he lacked or that he needed, as if he could ever lack anything that we could give him. No, the sacrifices were a visible portrait that sin, our selfishness, our pride, our injustice, our rebellion against God, how that sin always leads to death and to destruction. Eventually, God would lead this nation, Israel, into a promised land where they would build a mighty kingdom. The portable tabernacle would become a permanent temple, and there God would dwell among his people. However, Israel rebelled against God. They rejected his lordship, and they just replayed that same tired sin that we saw all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And eventually, this once mighty kingdom would become divided, it would eventually become defeated, And just prior to the Old Testament period that's known as the exile, there's this haunting scene in the prophetic book of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel the prophet describes this vision of the presence of God leaving the temple, no longer willing to to abide with the sin of his people. And that too could have been the end of the story. It could have ended in tragedy yet again. God could have left humanity to our own devices so that we would consume our world in one another. That our ruined, dead planet could just float into the cold abyss of space, and that would be it. But God did not abandon his people. He did not forsake those who were created in his image. He determined the final dwelling place for him to share communion with mankind. This time, his presence would not dwell in a garden, nor would it dwell in a temple or a tabernacle, but God's presence would dwell within a person. Through Jesus, the word of God become flesh, the ultimate tabernacle, God would not only establish his presence among his people, he would establish a redeemed union with his people. So for the remainder of our time, I want to examine that very concept about how when we look into these five verses, very short verses, we can see three redemptive unions that take place by God dwelling or tabernacling among his people. And these are our big ideas, but here they go. Number one, we're going to look at the union of God and man. Number two, we'll look at the union of grace and truth. And number three, we'll examine the union of mystery and knowledge. So point number one, we're going to look at the union of God and man. And I want to warn you that these verses contain very rich, very beautiful, but very deep truths. Truths that will stretch your mind, but sometimes it is profoundly worth digging into the depths because it's in the greatest depths that we find the greatest treasures. 
Let's look back at verse 14. And the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. God becomes incarnate in flesh. The creator enters into his creation. Divinity joins with humanity. Jesus Christ is one who is completely God, yet he is also completely man. He exists forever as one person in two natures. And those natures are neither separated apart nor are they confused together. That's a big idea, a big mystery, in fact. And the early church theologians called this mystery the hypostatic union. In fact, the earliest Christian heresies were teachings that attempted to distort or to refute this doctrine about Christ. But make no mistake, this biblical claim that affirms the godhood and manhood of Christ Jesus is of central and salvational importance to Christianity. Because without Jesus being completely God and completely man, we could not have a Savior. Only a man could endure the power of death, but only God could overcome death. And the Messiah needed to do both. And God has provided such a Redeemer. Through one, He has found to end the power of sin without simultaneously ending us. There is only one who is completely God, completely man, and our Messiah. And the identity of that one is summed up in his very title. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. By becoming and creating this union between God and man within his person, Jesus is now the true and better tabernacle. He is the true and better temple. He is the place where heaven and earth interlock and join together. And that means that through Jesus you can actually have a relationship with God. That you can come to know God as your God. That you can relate with God. That you can commune with the very creator who made you. That hunger that you have inside of your soul and your spirit will only be satisfied by this infinite God. And through Jesus, there is now a way for us to truly know our God and to be known by him. Point number two, the union of grace and truth. Let's continue in our text. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now these verses reiterate a theme that we've already seen in the first few verses of John. That from Moses all the way to John the Baptist, all of the story of Israel is intended to anticipate the coming of Christ Jesus the Messiah. However, there is something even more that's happening here. John the author is making yet another profound claim about Jesus, that in Jesus Christ, we are able for the first time to see and behold the glory of God. The glory of God was not a light or trivial matter in the Old Testament. In fact, 
When we look at the story of the Old Testament, we, we see that when people dare to enter into the glory of the Lord or to behold the glory of the Lord, that he is so holy, he is so transcendent and mighty that it was almost to risk death to come before the presence of such an almighty God. In fact, when Moses asked to see the glory of God, he had to be hidden within a crevice of a mountain. And then the presence of an almighty God could pass before him. And even then, he was not able to withhold or to behold God's face. He could only be able to see his backside. But with Jesus, things have changed. And because Jesus, because of Jesus, Jesus is now the greater reality. He is greater than the even great Moses. And that comparison really would have shocked. It would have scandalized the Jewish people who were living in the first century. Because Moses, after all, was the epitome of the holy man. He was the man through whom God would lead his people out of bondage and slavery. He was the man who, through whom God would give his people the law. But if you know the story of the Old Testament, there was one thing that Moses was unable to do. Do you know what it was? The one thing that Moses could not accomplish? He could not lead God's people into the promised land. He wasn't able to do it. That job belonged to another one named Joshua. Even still, you need to know that Moses cannot allow you to go to the promised land either. He cannot lead you there. That job belongs to one named Yeshua. Or as we say in the English language, that job belongs to Jesus alone. See, the law who is personified in this text as Moses is intended to confront us of our need. So that we might forsake all of our self-sufficiency and cry out to a Savior, one who can save us. The law of moral performance cannot save us, but it can point us to one who can save us. The law of truth comes through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes to us with both grace, profound grace, as well as profound truth, at times hard truth. Christ is merciful and kind. You will never find a person who is kinder. But because of the great love that he has for you, he is willing to confront you. He will tell you when you're wrong. He will tell you when you're in sin. And if he did not, he would not be a God who is very real, would he? Only a God of your own design will agree with you all of the time and coddle you in your sin. Jesus shows us the greatness of our sin so that he can also show us the greatness of the salvation that only he offers. Point number three, the union of mystery and knowledge. The final verse reads, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. In some ways, this one sentence summarizes the theme of John's prologue. We are morally, intellectually, and volitionally incapable of being able to know the incomprehensible, transcendent, and mysterious reality of God. But the fascinating claim of the Christian gospel is that in our condition of absolute inability and weakness to get to God's truth, truth chose to come to us in the form of a person named Jesus. And if we want to know who God is, 
we want to know what God is like, all we need to do is to look to Jesus, who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his holy nature. This means if you want to know how God feels about the outcast and the oppressed, look to how Jesus treated the outcast and the oppressed. If you want to know how God feels about self-righteousness and hypocrisy, look to Jesus and how he treated those who were self-righteous and hypocritical. If you want to know about the kindness of God, the generosity of God, the fierceness of God's love for you, look to Jesus. Because in Jesus we have the pure unfolding of the truth of God. New Testament theologian D.A. Carson comments on this verse. He says, The beloved Son, the incarnate Word, Himself God, while being at the Father's side, has broken the barrier that made it impossible for human beings to see God and has made Him known. Jesus is the exegesis of God. The revelation of the Word is the ultimate disclosure of God Himself. Now, this is not just a theological point. It's actually really practically important for us to understand this as Christians. Because you see, we're in a different age of history, aren't we? The world is no longer able to behold Jesus in the flesh. He now sits at the right hand of God, awaiting the day of his triumphant return. But the church is the body of Jesus Christ. We are filled with the Spirit of Christ, and we are called to continue the mission of Jesus Christ. So in the same way, when we look to Jesus and are able to see the truth of God, when the church is faithful to the call that we have been given, we are able to show the world the truth of Jesus. In fact, the same John who wrote this gospel also wrote a letter later on in the New Testament called 1 John. And in that letter he says, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. It's when we love the unlovable, when we show grace even to our enemies, when we display radical generosity and selflessly serve our city and our world, we are able to show an unbelieving and often cynical world the character of Jesus Christ. I pray for us, even when it's risky, even when it's hard, even when it's heartbreaking, that Redeemer Christian Church would be a church that would image our God, that would bear the image of Christ himself to our small corner of the world. I want to conclude by yet again going back to a reference of John the Baptist in verse 15. You see, the unique role of John the Baptist was to bear witness to the reality that the word of God had become flesh and dwelt among humanity. But it's interesting to note how he made that announcement. He does not say, behold, the conquering king who has come to reign. He does not say, behold, the mighty lion who has come to claim his dominion. No, what he will say in all the gospel accounts is, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Why does he choose this way to announce that the Messiah has come? Why is this the, the way, the words that he uses? I think it goes back to that theme of the tabernacle, the theme of God's presence among his people. Because remember, 
How was God's presence able to dwell among his sinful people? It was through blood sacrifice, specifically the sacrifice of an innocent lamb. By John the Baptist heralding that Jesus is the Lamb of God, he is saying at long last, the true and the better Lamb has come. By his cross, by his resurrection, Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice who will not just merely temporarily restore briefly for one moment communion with God. He will restore the presence of God among his people eternally, forever and ever. In fact, if you want to know how the story of the Bible ends, it ends with that promise, with that vision of that day that is coming when God will dwell among his people. That is where all of history is pointed. As Revelation chapter 21 shows us, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is the hope of Advent. And I invite you today to place your hope in the Lamb of God, who alone makes this hope reality. So, Redeemer, may we be a people that are defined by this hope of Advent. May we rejoice that God has come among us, that that. The word of God has become flesh. May we be amazed that in our Messiah, the steadfast love of God and the faithfulness of God have met. That righteousness and peace have kissed. May we marvel that in the face of Jesus, we behold the visible image of our invisible God. Amen? Amen. Let us pray together. Almighty and everlasting God, in this season... It is so apparent to us as we look at the world, as we look at many of the hard stories and the hard truths that confront our own individual lives and the lives of our nation, the lives of our world that is still in a pandemic. I pray that you would ignite in our heart the hope, the only hope that will never disappoint us. Help us to be utterly convinced that your kingdom is coming and that restoration of all things has been promised to us. And I pray that we in the present moment would be empowered by your spirit to live as emissaries of that coming kingdom. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us uh, in such a way that our lives would bear the very fruit of the Holy Spirit so that in us, all who see us, even those who are unbelievers, even those who do not yet know you, would see the love of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, thank you that you have already accomplished our redemption, that we're just waiting for the day that all of your promises are brought to completion and consummation. We thank you that you are a faithful God who has a long history of keeping your promises. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening.
listening to this podcast from Redeemer Christian Church in Amarillo, Texas. For more information about Redeemer, please visit our website at RedeemerChristianChurch.com.